Tonight I'd like to present a model of the human being, of us, of life. Or we could even say a mandala of human realities and possibilities that I find very useful. It's a way way of looking at who we are, which can be quite clarifying and supportive for insight. Of course, all models, all ways of talking about life, of describing it, are in a way quite limited. Life is such an unfathomable mystery and is by no means an attempt to explain it. It's just to sort of point at certain aspects to clarify. can perhaps be a helpful approach to understand the meaning and the significance of non-self, of anatta, which is a central aspect of this teaching. I'd like to talk about what is called the five skandhas, In the Buddhist tradition and in our meditation here, great value is given to approaching reality with an attitude of careful investigation and also of direct observation. That which sees or recognizes what is real or true over and over again that direct, immediate seeing and experiencing, unclouded by one's imprecise, habitual misconceptions. That's what is called insight or wisdom in a more ultimate way. For the sake of the arising of this kind of wisdom that this teaching model is used, In looking at ourselves, our body, heart, and mind, looking at the human being, we see and experience a number of specific aspects, or rather groups of properties and functions that make up a person. In one way of looking, we can distinguish two aspects of being, the physical reality and uh, psycho mental reality, we could say. In other words, body and mind. And mind in Buddhism usually meaning heart and mind. That includes the experiential quality of experience, perception, emotion and volition, thought, consciousness, all non-material phenomena So we can distinguish body and heart-mind. We can also distinguish five basic groups of properties and functions. The so-called five skandhas or khandhas, often translated as aggregates, or it really means correctly translated, and we don't usually do that. It means five heaps, 
Sometimes the Buddhists aren't very uh, subtle in ways of <laughs> speaking about us. <laughs> but useful. The form, physical, bodily element, it's what we could call experiential feeling tones, Vedana. It's functions of discernment and perception. Then emotional, mental, volitional functions, number four, and consciousness itself, five. Understanding and recognizing clearly these aggregates which we are does not only reveal a lot in terms of our functioning, but also is a great help in recognizing the selfless nature, the non-separate, non-independent nature of being, of our own being. So let's look at them one by one. The first one is form, rupa, which refers to all bodily, physical, material form. According to Buddhist tradition, form is made up of four basic elements. And that's not a kind of a scientific distinction, but an experiential distinction. Earth, water, fire, air. What is meant by these four elements isn't so much some esoteric basic substance, but rather different manifestations and functions that rule physical reality as far as we perceive it, sense it directly. Earth element means or refers to extension, the fact that material things take up space. And this can be directly perceived and experienced as hardness and softness, the sensation of material presence. So in meditation, it's quite important that it's to these experiences that we bring our awareness to, rather than staying at the level of concepts, like body or knee or hand or whatever, it is to actually come in contact with what there is in that place where we think the hand is or the knee is. So knee is a word and an idea about something. If we bring the attention there and feel, there might be pressure or there might be hardness or softness or tightness. There's different sensations and that's the level we really want to bring our mindfulness too. Fire element refers to temperature, the fact that material things vibrate at certain rates and thus they can be directly perceived and felt as temperature. Cold or cool or warm or hot or burning hot. This whole range of experience. We might sit here in the hall and the thought comes, oh, it's quite hot in here right now. When at that moment we bring our attention to the body, what do we see? 
Once again, it's a range of changing sensations of warmth and heat. So rather than the thought of it is hot now or it is cold or I'm freezing, it's the level of directly feeling and experiencing the temperature that is present right now. Air element refers to motion, the fact that material things move. Thus air can be perceived and felt as motion, pressure, vibration. Again, it is to a direct experience that this refers. Water element refers to cohesion, the fact that material is held together by the forces of cohesion. It's actually said that it cannot be felt or perceived by the body sense, because it's that which connects, merges and dissolves the impact of things that meet and touch. So, like those four elements, and also part of the aggregate of form are the tongue organ, whatever it is on the tongue that tastes and tastes itself, the nose and smell, the ear organ and sound, the eyes and visual form. So again, the sense objects and the experience that comes with them, they're very much part of our meditation and awareness. Again, di the direct sound, the direct experience of seeing forms and sights and colors and shapes, contrast, light. The first aggregate or skanda is form. The second one is, let's call it, experiential feeling tone. This isn't really a good word. In Pali, it's Vedana, and I'll use that word sometimes now. It's one of the most often misunderstood concepts, I feel, in Buddhist teachings, next to emptiness, which is worse. And I think in this case, it's simply because we have no proper equivalent in, for this word Vedana in our languages. So I'll call it, it's not feeling since in the sense of emotions, but feeling tone. It's the experiential texture or taste of each and every experience. Every moment has a Vedana. It's how an experience feels, either blissful or pleasant, and there are different kinds of blissful, different kinds, millions of kinds of pleasant ways of feeling. And then there's the whole range of neutral experience, there's even more of that, and then the whole range of vast range of unpleasant kinds of experience and of painfulness in experience. So it's not feelings in the sense of emotions, the experiential texture of any moment's experience. For example, the thought of self-judgment and condemnation might probably feel unpleasant. So that unpleasantness is Vedana, not the thought. A beautiful view or sight probably feels pleasant. It's that pleasant aspect of the experience that is Vedana. A 
bitter medicine probably creates an unpleasant experience of taste. The unpleasantness that is Vedana. An in-breath might have a neutral feeling tone. That tone of neutrality is Vedana. A moment of anger might feel quite painful. That painful aspect of the experience again, that's Vedana. Not the anger, not the feeling of anger. The tension in the neck might be unpleasant. Again, that unpleasantness is Vedana. Vedana is defined simply as experience. Or perhaps that element of our being that has the capacity to experience. The, that which experiences. And there are infinite possibilities of Vedanas. On that scale from blissful to painful, from intense to subtle, with bodily, sensory, emotional and mental events and experiences. One could perhaps also say that it's the receptive part of our capability to experience. It's also said that we create karma and it gives a result. The Vedana, how something feels, pleasant or unpleasant or very painful or blissful, that is that receiving of experience, Vedana. It's an aspect of our being with enormously far-reaching implications and effects. So I'm making such a thing about it. Because it is Vedana to which we react. We think we react to, to the birds or to what people say or to the food itself. It's really to that experience texture that we react. We react often with emotions, of attachment or of aversion, depending on whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, of desire if it promises to become pleasant, or of fear if it looks like it's going to become unpleasant, painful, or with hatred or with jealousy and fear and all the rest. With all this ways of reacting emotionally, which are the cause of suffering. So it's a very important area to look into, to be aware of in our practice, if we're interested in being free of suffering. And sometimes you could take a whole sitting or a whole walking, or if, if you want the whole day, just being aware of the feeling tone, just being aware of Vedana, of every experience. Be pleasant, present moment to moment and notice, oh, neutral, neutral, oh, pleasant, pleasant, pleasant. Liking it, pleasant, wanting more, oh, unpleasant, unpleasant. And just noticing feeling tones. The clearer we see that the feeling tone and are aware of it, the more we'll have a choice with our minds reacting with likes and dislikes and the whole proliferation of stories, or else responding with wisdom, with not buying into it, with not reacting, but with letting go, with acceptance, with equanimity, with balance. There is form, there is 
Vedana. The third aggregate is that of discernment, or sometimes also called perception. It refers to those functions which perceive things and discern one thing from another, recognize them for what they are, give things names, and sort of organize the raw experiential input, all the data that comes in, which is tons, I think. It must be thousands of inputs per second from what uh, science has found out. And we filter out most of it, and there's still 200 a second or so that comes in. It's what organizes all this mass of, of information into a meaningful pattern, into a coherent whole. Maybe it's the DOS of our computer. For example, and this is from Lama Govinda's book, Psychological Attitude, to be able to look at a rose and say, or, or know, or think, this is a rose. There's a number of complex processes of visual perception discerning colors and forms, singling them out from the other surrounding shapes. Already we have to see this is one object and that's different from the background, which is maybe brown or green. It does that. A process of visual perception that is running through the mind a few hundred thousand times until another process, the so-called synthetic process, starts to play which forms the entire composite image of the rose into a synthesis of the parts perceived beforehand. Then the process grasping the meaning runs through many, many times. Then lastly, grasping the name sets in, which makes up the name. If the name is already known, as in rose for us, three more processes run. A process called convention, a process called comparison, upon which the con conclusion, this is a rose, is formed. And finally, the process called name grasping applies the class name to the object. These complicated processes of imagination, memory, conception, discrimination, judgment, and classification, they all follow one another so rapidly in succession that the perceiver considers that he or she sees the rose immediately, instantaneously. Such is the complexity of these processes, distinguishable in an act of perception. And it's not that we have to learn them, it does that constantly. What is amazing is that somebody could distinguish all that stuff. That is really amazing. Now this rapid dynamic process, of course, also involves the physical organs, the outer and inner phenomena that are perceived, the first skanda. Always it involves a feeling tone, a vedana, that arises with each sequence, second skanda. And all of it is known by consciousness, which is the fifth the skandhas. And there is a constant ongoing response and reaction to all of it which is what the fourth skanda is all about. 
this force of the aggregates as kanda we're made up of is formations and volitional activities and tendencies. So first we form, then Vedana, then the whole discernment thing, and now formations, volitional activities, tendencies. It's really the active part of our heart and mind's functions. It includes all the wholesome and all the unwholesome emotions and feelings and all mental factors and qualities. So it includes greed, anger and hatred, and delusion, as much as renunciation, kindness, wisdom. It includes sleepiness, distraction and restlessness, as much as wakefulness, concentration and calm. It's the motivate, motivating force, the moving force behind all our actions of body, speech and mind. So it's also that which creates karma. All the intentions which karmically color and drive our actions are part of this aggregate. It's what can cause wars, what can create immense suffering, and it's what can help, heal, love, understand, and liberate. The fifth aggregate of skanda is consciousness. Consciousness is defined as clear and knowing, which doesn't really say a lot more than saying consciousness. In itself, it is empty of form or content. It means it doesn't in itself have any form or color or shape. Thus, it also doesn't have a size, doesn't have an extension in space, and it cannot be located anywhere. So in this sense, it is empty. Empty of form, empty of tangible things. Maybe somewhat the way a mirror is empty. It's itself empty of various forms, and that's why it can reflect forms, that's why it can accommodate them. If it were full of forms, it, it couldn't do it. It's empty and reflects what comes in front of it. Consciousness has the power to reflect or to know things, the things it comes in contact with. And in the sense of reflecting, it's somewhat like the mirror, but of course not in the sense of knowing, which the mirror doesn't do. But then we could also want to describe that same capacity in different terms, and we would then say consciousness is dynamic and has the power to manifest as appearance. Instead of saying it reflects what comes in front of it, it manifests as appearance. I mean, it's interesting, we never quite know whether it reflects or it appears, because there's nobody outside who can tell. This is who we are, so how could we know? Does it create appearance or does it reflect what already here. 
in the sense that it can manifest as appearance, it's definitely different from this mirror example. It's a power, it's an energy, and it has radiance. Sometimes it's also said it's radiant and knowing and empty. There are six kinds of consciousnesses depending on their object. There is visual consciousness connected to the eye and colors, shapes. There's auditory or sound consciousness connected to ear and sounds. Olfactory, smell. The next word I can't say. Taste consciousness connected to tongue and taste. Tactile bodily consciousness that arises in connection with the body, sensations, and mental emotional consciousness, connection with the heart, mind. This is what knows what is conscious, unlike rocks or water or air, which doesn't know. So in this way, Connected and supported by our body, our form, skanda, our inner and outer world is experienced or tasted perhaps by Vedana, experiential feeling tone, is discerned and given meaning by the discernment or perception skanda, and acted upon by the skanda of formation and volition, or karma known by the consciousness skanda. And this is who we are. It's not what we have. There's me and I have those five aspects. It's who we are and there's no one else behind it. No one in or above it who is this skanda or has them. Not like Fredness, somewhere who has five skandhas, but Fredness is separate somewhere. <coughs> what we are is this incredibly dynamic pattern of interacting elements and functions arising in a closely linked dependency on each other with no static, no solid, no graspable entity within the whole process. And also, of course, no self or ego that we have to get rid of, as we sometimes believe. This dynamic pattern of all these events playing together, this is us. And if you see that all the objects, like sounds and sights and smells and tastes, are part of it, in that, it even becomes more obvious that it's not even clear where we begin and where we end. Since the objects are part of, the outer objects are part of the form skanda, and you're looking at the same object, then is this part of you or of me, or is it separate, and, and how is it, how can we separate it, and where's the line? It's so tightly interwoven that even just seeing that, we start to realize that our notion of separate entities is kind of very questionable.
seeing this clearly over and over in direct experience and insight is very liberating. The understanding of interdependence, or as Technatan calls it, interbeing. The fact that all things in life, inner and outer, are tightly interconnected. The understanding of non-independent, non-separate self-existence, or non-self, that is liberating. Whenever we truly live in that understanding, we are free, as one Sri Lankan monk said, no self, no problem. But whenever our mind identifies with and grasps at any of these five aggregates or skandhas or aspects of our beings, as being I, me or mine, We're bound, we're tied in knots, we're limited, or we feel limited, cut off, and we suffer. So then one could say, lots of self, lots of problems. Now in addition, it is not only such that within the five khandhas, or in addition to them, no independent self or solid I can be found. But each one of these khandhas too, of course, is empty of being somehow substantial or graspable in itself. They too arise and disappear moment to moment, depending on causes and circumstances. And when looked into, cannot be seen to exist in any kind of substantial, real way. As a text says, Physical forms are like balls of foam. Feeling tones, Vedana, like bubbles. Discernment perceptions resemble mirages. Volitional factors, emotions, mind states are like banana tree trunks. They look like trunks, but their leaves rolled up tightly. And consciousnesses resemble magical illusions. It's really a vivid show of mere appearance, sparkling and yet insubstantial. So understanding this transparent, ingraspable, empty nature directly, non-conceptually, is to realize ultimate reality. The heart mind opening, in non-grasping, non-clinging, and in non-resistance, in non-aversion, in very deep peace. And maybe I'll just go on elaborating a little bit more, or perhaps repeating on this concept of, or this reality of what often is called emptiness. I like to call it ingraspability, insubstantiality, and not just call it emptiness, because still there's this sense that um, if I stop all my thoughts and not much happens, you know, there's a sort of a blankness and it's really empty and this is it. Emptiness is not so helpful. Emptiness is only meaningful in the sense of 
when we would say empty of independent self-existence. Things are empty of being somehow graspable solidly in themselves, independent of other things. In that connection we could use the word empty, but otherwise I don't think it's very helpful. And again now, say more and even these words might can help to understand, but they can also create more confusion. So if it does, just drop it. It's really the seeing those things from a silent awareness that eventually matters. And that makes them quite clear, rather than thinking a lot about it. So I'll try with some illustrations that I've often used. Maybe they can be helpful. In a way, the fact that everything in life, all things and beings arise and exist in a dynamic pattern in manifold dependence on causes and conditions. Everything is there because it had a cause, and many causes and many conditions, and it came from that, and it's again itself the cause for many new effects. Like in the case of these five skandhas, That fact of this dynamic process really already points directly at its insubstantial nature. The fact that this life is one thing creating the next, one event causing the next in million-fold interwoven ways, that already shows that it's not so substantial. It couldn't do that movement. It couldn't do that commotion of constantly turning from one thing into the other if it were solid, if it were substantial, if it were fixed. So seeing that this apparent existence is a tightly interwoven dance of interconnected events is exactly what makes the ingraspable nature apparent. So that's why it's so helpful and so important that we look into the way things constantly change. We can spend so much time trying to get the right experience, making the right experience, and we know how hard it is. Usually it doesn't work, and then when we got it, we try to hold on to it or repeat it or create the state, and we can spend retreats after retreats doing that. Or we want the pleasant experience and not the unpleasant one, or the good one and not the bad one. And yet, each one of those experiences is exactly what we need and is perfectly ideal to see what we really want to look at. That they just came into being from previous causes and circumstances, and just about as we even see them, they're about to change into something else. It could be sleepiness or wide awakeness, or it could be anger, or it could be kindness. If we just look, we can't miss to see that it's this incredible dynamic process all the time going on. And it can't be other than insubstantial. If anywhere in this universe there were something solid, really 
that stays the same. The whole thing would freeze. The whole universe couldn't move. If everything is interdependent and somewhere something was solid, in here or somewhere out there, it's just not possible. If you imagine this big clockwork of wheels and cogwheels and things that drive each other, like a huge clock maybe, and the whole thing works and there's many fingers and calendars and things that you know show the signs of the of the stars and all that and it, the whole thing works to, together perfectly and then you would take some solid pebble or a stick and put it in somewhere in that uh, whole clockwork it doesn't matter where you would block it in one place the whole thing would block in the same moment. It's not that that piece would be blocked and the rest would just turn on. Because everything is so interdependent, everything would block. And the same would be the case with this life, with this universe, with this world. But very obviously the universe doesn't stop, hasn't stopped, isn't static or fixed. It's the opposite. Everything moves, vibrates, changes. Everything turns from one thing into another. And we see that more and more clearly in meditation when we just look. You think of flower bulbs. And we have this big brown thing. And we plant it at the right time in the garden. And then they're called gladiola. Gladiolas come out. Now with the gladiolas, I'm not sure that... Uh, I think the bulb stays, so it's not a good example. Back to the, to the soya bean. You know, the green hard bean? There's more obvious. The bean turns into a sprout after three days with some light and humidity. And the sprout is a long white thing, not a small green hard thing. So how real was that green hard thing if it turned into a white long thing in three days? And how real is that white long thing if I can eat it and tomorrow morning again it's something totally different? <laughs> it's so obvious. Things aren't so real. Things are not what they appear to be they're also not different. The Buddha said, just as a magician produces visible objects such as horses, elephants and other things, which though they appear, seem to appear, do not truly exist, so should you see experience the whole of reality. In that there's nothing to grasp, nothing to hold on, nothing to fight against. To the extent the mind opens to the truth, to the extent the mind understands that reality, to that extent the mind is free, we are free. So we may or may not have certain experiences, minor or major, 
And we label them, we know what they are, or we don't label them, we don't know what they are. We care about what they are, or we don't care. What really ultimately matters is what an experience, what any experience, what a meditation, a good or a bad meditation or a retreat does for us. That's what really matters. And no matter what an experience might be, the question is, are we transformed in some way? Are we freer? Do we experience less inner suffering, conflict, bondage? Are we less driven, less caught by desire, by aversion? I think that is what really matters. No matter what we saw or didn't see, what really matters is do we change, do we become freer? And more than anything, have we become kinder, have we become more generous, more compassionate people to the world? What good is one individual's far-out experience if it doesn't reflect onto life around us in a helping, healing, in a loving way. Not really that much, I would say. So it flows from insight, what flows from any experience, what flows from our practice eventually. The results, really, is what matters. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.